the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max Mountner of The Accidental Engineer. Today, we are joined by Curtis Fonger, Engineering Manager at Google. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. It's awesome to have you. For our audience that might be curious about how I came across Curtis and how Curtis ended up on the show, um, I was reviewing some very interesting, very old PDFs. <laughs> with, and it just so happens that Curtis Fonger's name was on those PDFs and I gave him a Google and I got in touch with him and discovered that he actually works on Google podcasts at Google. Uh, one of the, you know, largest possible platforms there can be for audio content. So I'd figure I'd ask Curtis a little bit about that PDF I found him about, and also a little bit about, uh, the types of work that led you to, uh, Google. So, Curtis, what was this PDF that I found you through? Sure. Uh, so it was quite a coincidence that uh, those two are connected at all. Uh, it feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, a friend and I, Bill Jacobs and myself, uh, when we were back in college uh, at MIT, they have a program called Independent Activities Period, or IAP for short. And we had just been doing a bunch of interviews because we were in our master's program and um, we were looking for full-time jobs and uh, IAP takes place in January. For IAP, the computer science department sent out an email and said, hey, you know, if anybody wants to teach some classes, you know, do some student activities for IAP, it would be a really great idea. Um, so, you know, send us your ideas and, and we'll see if we can help you out. Because we'd been doing so many interviews and this was very top of mind for us, uh, my friend and I got together and said, hey, what if we did a interview prep class? You know, nowadays that seems like, yeah, doesn't everybody do that? That's like so standard, right? Um, but this was back in 2009. Uh, there were a lot fewer materials, uh, at least from what we could find online, specifically for prepping for programming interviews. Um, I think there were some good resources, but it, it's not like what you have today, which is just wealth of information. What we found really funny was that in all the interviews we'd been doing, the knowledge that was required to do well in those interviews was a very small subset of all the knowledge that we had to cover in our computer science uh, degrees. We said, you know, we should just teach like a, a four-day class covering the critical material uh, for what you really should dive deep into to do well in these programming interviews. And so uh, we put together the class. Uh, that's how it started. Uh, we didn't actually choose the name up front, but when we thought about, you know, what we were going to call the class, we, we thought, well, should we call it prepping for your programming interview? And I said, well, no, that, that sounds kind of, you know, dull. And uh, the term hacking at MIT was very prevalent. Now, you know, everybody uses the word hacking. It was actually much less common back then. Hacking was much more viewed as, um, at least externally, as like, you know, breaking into computer systems, right? Like a hacker. Um, but at MIT, the term hacking often meant like pulling a prank. Uh, and, and that was kind of the origin of the word. But it was starting to morph into more of a meaning of like, um, you know, figuring something out with shortcuts. And we also uh, looked at like the what we thought to be one of the hottest uh, companies that was recruiting on campus at the time. And back in 2009, that was definitely Google. And so we said, hey, we think it'd be a pretty catchy title to call it hacking the Google interview. 
Uh, and so uh, that was the start of it. And what was the reception like? The reception was uh, much better than what we expected. Uh, we distributed some flyers, we sent out an email, and we thought, well, you know, if just a few people show up, that would be great. But let's, big a, let's book a large uh, classroom just in, clay, just in case. Uh, and so we did. Uh, we booked a large classroom. Um, and, uh, but we thought we're going to have plenty of space, plenty of seats. It's going to be no problem. Um, when we showed up the first day, there was standing room only. Um, the, the room was packed. Um, that was one of those moments in life where, uh, you have, you, where you surprise yourself <laughs> and you kind of, you kind of think, oh, wow, what have I just gotten myself into? Um, but it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun, um, and it turned out to be a really great class. So you led a pretty circuitous route on your way to Google, including going to one of Google's greatest greatest nemesis uh, <laughs> as well as as well as starting a, a company from scratch uh, as a as a co-founder. And uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background from MIT through to today at Google? Sure. Out of all those programming interviews we did, um, turns out I actually did not get a job at Google uh, at the time, even though I did apply. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> just goes to show you, you know, uh, did I really know what I was talking about? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but actually, I got a job at Microsoft and it was and it was a really great uh, experience. Uh, moved out to uh, Redmond, Washington, and started on a team that was known at the time as uh, Windows Live Sync, and that had grown out of a team that was called FolderShare. Um, this team eventually got merged with another team inside Microsoft called Mesh, which became Windows Live Mesh, um, which eventually became SkyDrive, and now which is known as OneDrive. But uh, essentially, I was working on the Microsoft uh, Dropbox competitor product, specifically on uh, you know, C++, Win32 code. I have not touched any C++ or Win32 since that team, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a pretty fun start to my career. Um, so I was there for two and a half years, and then uh, I met my uh, co-founder at Microsoft, um, and we... Uh, we left Microsoft. Uh, his name is Keller Smith, and we started a company called Apatos. Uh, and that was a um, because we both had the startup itch, uh, and we really wanted to try our luck at the startup game. And uh, so what we did was um, we built a automatic website uh, builder for restaurants. Eventually, we were going to expand into all small businesses, but we were um, starting with restaurants because we felt like we had to pick, you know, a beachhead, um, you know, a pretty specific customer customer niche to build a good product. Uh, so, um, and then we also went through uh, TechStars during that startup experience. We, um, uh, and that was a really great experience. Um, it was the TechStars slash Microsoft Azure. Uh, joint uh, accelerator um, in Seattle. For our audience that might not know about TechStars, I'll briefly explain. It's a startup accelerator, like you were just describing. I don't know if they predated or postdated Y Combinator, uh, but the model is to give 
what in VC terms is a relatively small amount of money, like uh, six figures, I guess, for a relatively much smaller portion of equity in your company. But was this joint partnership with Microsoft and Techstars, was that a simple transition where you uh, maybe saw an internal memo at Microsoft that you're like, oh, dang, this looks cool? Or what was the what was the decision making you had to make about whether to leave Microsoft to take up startups? Right. Um, so it's funny. The uh, uh, the Techstars Microsoft uh, Accelerator Program actually had nothing to do with our decision to leave Microsoft. We only found out about it after we um, after we left. Uh, while we were at Microsoft, you know, we're we're talking on the side about, um, hey, you know, maybe it'd be really cool to do a startup. You know, we had no idea what we were getting into, of course, in our naivete, but uh, we were. Uh, bright-eyed, uh, young entrepreneur wannabes. <laughs> so what we did see was a local uh, event called Angel Hack. That was a hackathon that was, um, uh, I think it was taking place in a couple different places in the country. There was a local event. And so it was just over a weekend. And we said, hey, you know, we have this idea for an automatic website builder for restaurants. Um you know, why don't we just prototype it at this Angel Hack event? Uh, and so that's what we did. We went to Angel Hack one weekend. Uh, we whipped together a prototype. It was truly smoke and mirrors. You know, it just used, uh, you know, client-side, a browser client-side JavaScript uh, to pull from the, the Foursquare API. <laughs> and, um, and it would um, kind of generate a website. For a restaurant. Uh, and that was our demo. We were fortunate. We won the event. And so we went on to nationals and which was the, you know, the final angel hack event. And then we were fortunate enough to win that one too. Um, I guess the idea resonated <laughs> well enough with the investors that were there. Not that that's, you know, the reason for doing a startup. Um, I would never <laughs> recommend that to anyone like, oh, yeah, you know, you got to first win a hackathon and then, you know, you're onto a great idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if anything, it should be a warning sign if you win a hackathon. Hmm. May maybe your idea just looks really cool, but does it really have a business plan <laughs> underneath it? But that was that was the impetus for us. Uh, leaving Microsoft, you know, winning that event. And then suddenly we were talking with investors and then it was like, okay, um, are we going to do this? That's when we both left. And at the end of Angel Hack, we were introduced to the person who was running the Techstars Microsoft Accelerator in Seattle. So it was very coincidental. To be fair to your point about maybe pursuing an idea that wins a hackathon, how, how many years were you working on Apatos before um, getting acquired by Google? So we did, uh, we did Apatos for two years, went through Angel Hack, um, sorry, went through Techstars. <laughs> <laughs> and um, basically what we tried to do was we tried to figure out how we were going to scale um, the customer acquisition model, right? Because we felt like we had a pretty cool concept. We had... Um, uh, some interesting technology, um, even though it, you know, it wasn't like completely revolutionary. We thought that the idea of helping small business owners get get websites that were ready to go and removing all that friction was pretty compelling. Um, the problem that we were struggling with was um, actually building a 
business around this. <laughs> um, and uh, because um, selling to small business owners is um, notoriously difficult and expensive uh, because they have a lot of, you know, incoming traffic, right? They have tons of people that are trying to sell them things. And, um, and so generally what you need is, you know, a large sales force and you have to sell them something that um, is going to um, return enough lifetime value uh, to be worth the sales cost, the, the, um, uh, yeah, the customer acquisition cost. So, um, so we spent most of our two years experimenting with sales cycles actually, or sales models, um, uh, which, um, you know, might be strange to, to think about, but, um, you know, the technology of the business wasn't really the place that we were trying to innovate. Um, so we uh, we experimented with um, everything we could think of. <laughs> I mean, and so, feel, uh, free, yeah. feel free to elaborate. Like, I think uh, all sure. of us are curious about it. Sure. We experimented with, um, uh, um, exp- you know, what you'd consider to be expensive sales models to see if anything um, was going to work there. So door-to-door, um, cold calls, um, we experimented with um, online ads, um, you know, like Google ads, Facebook ads. Um, we experimented with uh, email marketing. Um, one thing that we um, kind of fell into accidentally that was starting to uh, get a little bit of traction was um, we partnered up with uh, restaurant.com to uh, be a white label website provider for them because they uh, basically had a bunch of bundled services that they were selling to restaurants that was their business model and so they had a sales force um, and they approached us at a um, at the um, national restaurant association uh, yearly convention because we had a booth there (laughs) and so um, uh, that was that was a very fun event by the way Um, but uh, uh, yeah, we, we got set up with them there and they, um, they said, Hey, do you want to, um, partner up with us? You know, um, all we would ask is that you white label your product, um, being a restaurant.com website builder. And then we will, um, essentially buy a, like, uh, licenses from you and then, um, offer it as part of a bulk package to all the restaurants that, um, we signed up. Um, so, that turned at the end that turned out to be the bulk of our revenue coming in um it was from that restaurant.com model so you know we we asked ourselves hey do we want to pursue this white label strategy more um do we want to go out and um you know market ourselves to other um small business um service bundling companies like this um and try and uh, get in that way um and you know, we considered it, uh, but when we mapped out the rest of our runway and whether we'd be able to raise venture funding on that, um, the math just didn't quite work out at that point in time. Um, so we said, you know, we um, this is going to be tough to scale at a venture level. And so that's when we started to, to look for acquirers. So I've got to ask about timeline-wise. This coincides probably with a fair amount of other interesting stuff happening in the SMB, small, medium-sized business space with Yelp, of course. Uh, I don't recall when Yelp IPO'd. 
but also more recently, I guess Thumbtack is another example of a small and medium-sized business model where um, they uh, resell leads to service providers. So it's less restaurants, I guess. Um, so Thumbtack might not be a good comparison, but in in how much how much of the your, those two years were spent doing like competitor research and seeing other models that might have been working or failing and uh, maybe taking a cue from what else was out there? We did spend quite a bit of time doing competitor research. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how you slice, um, you know, who your competitors are, right? Because um, in one sense, companies like Yelp or, um, you know, Groupon or other companies that are just targeting, um, you know, small businesses with other kinds of services um, are kind of competitor. And um, when you're thinking about the sales model, um, but then the other competitors we're looking at were just the um, the direct product competitors, so the the website builders of the world, right? So we were looking at um, uh, at the time, you know, Weebly and Wix were really big. Uh, Squarespace was on the rise. They seemed to be um, taking a pretty big design angle, but they weren't starting with, um, uh, like the traditional small business owner. I think they were starting more with the, um, like designer community, um, to build really, um, designer websites. Um, and so, uh, we were, we were trying to find, um, our niche, right. Our sweet spot. Um, and, um, yeah, we just we just didn't quite get there. <laughs> so I've yeah. got to ask this because I think a lot of people are also curious about this. But how, just how different was, you know, preparing for coding interviews from running a real business like the one that you guys were trying to get off the ground? Like, how were the was there any skills overlap, or, or are those skills just to, skill sets just totally different? Wow. Um... I would have to say almost totally different. Yeah, preparing for coding interviews is um, such a very specific skill set, right? It's it's um, um, you think you're talking algorithms, data structures, uh, system design. Um, you know, at least for for entry level, um, at least in in software engineering. Whereas um, the things that you need to be thinking about when you're um, a startup founder are completely different. Um, it's, it's much less about, you know, how you're going to, um, build scalable software and much more about, um, figuring out where the biggest unknowns of your business are and, uh, disambiguating those unknowns as quickly as possible, right? Finding product market fit, uh, the whole lean startup methodology, is a great um, overview of um, all the things that you're supposed to do, um, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> with startups. Um, I mean, there's there's a little bit of debate around that, um, but uh, uh, for the most part, I, I think it's it's pretty valid. Um, and but it's very very different from prepping for uh, programming interviews. I'm guessing this this sort of topic is wrapped up in all kinds of NDAs, but it would be cool to hear a little bit about the acquisition process of uh, shopping around Apatos uh, when you whether you were approached, whether you shopped it. Uh, how did how did an acquisition become um, the exit path? Sure. Um, so 
once we decided to start shopping around, um, we, <laughs> uh, we actually used LinkedIn at first to just reach out um, to uh, people uh, either in biz dev at, um, or you know, corp dev um, at big companies or CEOs of mid-sized companies. Um, and we actually, you know, to our surprise, uh, started getting some responses. Uh, so that's how the whole process started. Um, eventually, we got uh, introduced to uh, our contact at Google through Techstars. Um, but uh, yeah, just deciding to start the process was was really uh, the beginning. Um, people weren't, uh, uh, companies weren't reaching out to us at the time. Um, I have, I've never experienced this, uh, but I've heard that um, uh, if you are getting acquired, you kind of want to start. Um, ideally, you want to start from a position where people are reaching out to you, you know, to acquire you. Um, but you can start the process um, from either direction. Totally, totally. For, for people who may not know what that line of communication looks like, uh, I, there's a there's a process called due diligence <laughs> where uh, it's a really uh, extensive research process where people who might want to buy your company demand that you share a lot of information with them and they get very nosy and they want to know very specific numbers <laughs> and you might not have even thought to be so rigorous about recording the numbers they're asking for but for audience that are curious about what what that process of shopping a business looks like. Can you maybe speak a little to that? Sure. Um, so the various stages, I can go through those. Um, so, you know, we had the um, uh, exploratory stage uh, where, you know, we were getting connected with Google and started to um, talk, hey, does this make sense? Um, uh, you know, would Google um, want this sort of uh, IP to acquire? Um, and once, um, uh, you know, once we got past that stage, once they said, yeah, you know, this would be, uh, this is kind of a direction that um, we're uh, looking to go, then uh, we moved on to, um, I don't know what stage you call it, like the interview stage, <laughs> essentially. Um, and this is actually where programming interviews came back in um, because <laughs> I did go back and review my old uh, handouts at, um, at that point because I hadn't uh, interviewed for a job um, at that point um, for like four and a half years um, <laughs> since I joined Microsoft. So um, we did go through a traditional Google interview loop um, and uh, you know, I think that was that was part of the initial talent vetting process because we were um, we were an acquire. We weren't, um, you know, what you would consider more of a product acquisition. Um, you know, one of the big acquisitions, which you've which I'm sure you've heard of, like YouTube or something like that, right? Um, where they're going to keep the service alive. Um, so that really, they're um, they were interviewing us, um, and then once we went through the interview loop, um, then. Uh, you know, with a normal uh, job um, negotiation progress uh, process, you kind of go into, uh, you know, talking with the recruiter and, you know, negotiating um, what your salary and things like that are going to be. We had the equivalent of that, but with, um, you know, a company acquisition side. So, um, you know, we were negotiating what, um, how much Google was going to pay, like for the, the company's, um, uh, IP, 
Um, and so there was definitely negotiation that um, went on back and forth with there. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, we had to figure out on our end, you know, how are we going to uh, pay back our investors? Because, um, you know, we had investors, we had debt, uh, we had things like that. And so that was, um, that was also part of the negotiation process. Um, and then um, once we got to a good state there, then we um, due diligence was was the last phase where um, they said, OK, you know, like things are looking pretty good. Now we're at the final stage. Now we just need to dive into, you know, every single document you've ever created, <laughs> um, all of your financial records, um, everyone who you've ever employed, um, you know, anyone who's signed any NDAs with you. Um, uh, all of the code, you know, that you have, we're going to like run security checks against it. Um, uh, there's a whole process with that. Um, and then, um, uh, part of the, um, acquisition, um, is also negotiating a acquisition contract and, you know, terms of the deal. And that has to go back and forth between, um, your lawyers and their lawyers. And there are things, um, like indemnification clauses, um, where, for example, you know, after you get acquired, if somebody were to sue your original company, you know, what would happen, right? And so there's um, that's all kind of mapped out um, uh, in the uh, in the legal docs that um, that you you work out. Um, and so that that took a little while. You know, that took like at least um, a few weeks. Uh, I think it can take quite a bit longer. You know, the the um, the larger the company you are, or um, the longer you've been in business, it's just a much, much slower process. You know, it's, um, it's Google wanting to make sure that, you know, they're not getting themselves into a really bad situation by acquiring you. Um, since it is more significant than um, simply hiring an employee from somewhere. So from restaurant site builder to Google podcasts, what, what was your path to working on podcasting? Um, you know, that was uh, also um, completely random, <laughs> um, uh, as are many things. Um, but when, uh, <laughs> when I joined Google, um, when, well, when we joined Google, my co-founder and I, we joined Google My Business uh, because, you know, we'd been focusing on small businesses. And so... Um, we started working on um, uh, Google's, uh, you know, business-focused product um, that was focused on um, small business owners, you know, brick-and-mortar um, restaurants, coffee shops, um, hair salons, things like that. Um, and that's actually part of Google Maps, um, is part of that org, um, known internally as Geo. Um, and um, so I worked on that for about a year, um, and then I switched teams over to the Google Maps uh, client side team, um, specifically the Android app working on driving and navigation. Uh, and that was, um, uh, then I worked on that for about, hmm, trying to think, maybe a year and a half. Um, but then, um, I started to get that startup itch again, <laughs> as uh, as it happens with me from time to time. Um, and so there was an internal program uh, called Area 120 at Google. Um, and um, 
I met a friend um, here uh, at Google. He was working in DoubleClick. Um, and we started talking and said, hey, you know, like maybe we should check out this program. We're both interested in startups. Um, let's, you know, let's apply and, and, uh, and see what we can do. Um, and so we applied to Area 120 um, with uh, the mission to basically explore the start exploring the podcast space. Um, and Google hadn't launched Google Podcasts yet at the time. So, um, you know, we... Um, we were entering this um, thinking that, you know, Google wasn't really doing much yet in the podcast space besides um, the Google Play Music um, podcast edition that had been like recently launched. Um, and so we joined Area 120 um, and, you know, spent some time in that. Um, it was kind of a startup, um, internal startup incubator, um, I would say, um, and spent some time in there and then eventually uh, we exited Area 120 and then uh, merged with uh, Google Podcasts. And at that point, Google, the the Google Podcasts app had uh, had launched, and so we're we're now part of the bigger Google Podcast team. So, uh, feel free to pass on these questions. Uh, and I should preface this by saying that uh, Curtis isn't speaking on behalf of his employer. Um, he, all of the remarks he makes are his own. Uh, but the, a couple of questions I want to ask you about podcasts very generally is one is what has surprised you the most about podcasts since starting working on them? Um, what surprised me the most is it, um, it feels like podcasts are one of the last areas on the web that is still pretty much open web, Right. Um, there are other areas uh, that have become more walled gardens, right? If you if you look at like video or you look at news, you know, or your Facebook feed and things like that, these are all like these are somewhat walled gardens, right? You you have these publishers that are you know publishing content to aggregators, right? Whereas podcasts are still very much an open web part of the ecosystem, you know, which is um, uh, somewhat of a throwback. Uh, to an older time in the internet, right? If you think of like Google Reader, right? When most people would look at news articles um, from RSS feeds that they would find, right? And, you know, their favorite blogs and they would configure these things. Like podcasts still work that way today. And there's no one single aggregator that has taken over uh, the podcast market yet. Um, and so that's been, that's been very surprising. Um, but also something that um, uh, that uh, we've been leaning into, um, and uh, because the the open web part of the podcast ecosystem is um, very healthy, we think. Yeah, so that's been one of the most surprising things. Definitely, definitely. I th one of the th one of the things that I've thought about with audio is just how uh, cerebral the content consumption experience is versus maybe. Uh, video, like where there are a lot of wild gardens, you got Netflix and Disney in the streaming space, you have a lot more getting into the streaming space for video. But audio only content is so fascinating, because it just cerebrally, it feels like mind control. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if that resonates with anyone else. But like, when you're listening to, uh, you know, high quality audio, there's just this, uh, it's, you don't even need to see the person to know 
distinguishing uh, real emotion and the maybe emphasis that they want to have on certain uh, content that they're saying. Um, but to your point about the open web, uh, it's definitely a wild west of discoverability, like where Netflix or Disney streaming now can surface, you know, XYZ thumbnails and it's hyper optimized and hyper personalized audio content is just, you find it from it being mentioned by a friend. <laughs> like, yeah. It's true. That really is um, still how it is. Uh, and it's kind of cool that way. Uh, what you were saying, you know, podcast being cerebral, the other adjective I've heard that, you know, people use a lot is um, podcasts are uh, intimate, right? They're, they're much more intimate than like video or text or something like you, you can really feel like uh, you're connecting with a host, you know, even if you've never actually in, uh, interacted with them uh, directly, just because you're, you know, you're listening to them at home, you're listening to them in the car, it feels like you know, they're talking right into your ear. And uh, that has a certain effect. And <laughs> I think that's actually served certain genres and podcasts very well, um, especially things like true crime, right, where everything is very mysterious. And <laughs> you want to feel like you're, um, you know, you're, you're, um, you're part of the, uh, the mystery and the discovery process. Um, I mean, I think it was one of the reasons why Serial was such a breakout success. Uh, because audio is just the the perfect medium for consuming that kind of content. Totally, totally. And when you mention these types of uh, fiction-based storytelling or or nonfiction storytelling, high, I guess, high production quality podcasts, one of the things that blows my mind about them versus maybe an accidental engineer is their incorporation of music. And as you're paying close attention to maybe your storyteller's voice, the amount of production needed to align uh, the beat of speaking with maybe an underlying musical track is really can be done really nicely in a way that is that your brain's already accustomed to paying attention to the auditory sound of somebody's voice. So you're hyper aware of the music contrasting with or or uh, going well with the voice in a way that maybe if they did that in video, where the person's speaking and the audio is well aligned, the visual is just so distracting that you don't really get the full emotional resonance of experiencing the audio of a voice plus music. Um, I'm sure there's all kinds of analytics and stuff coming down the pipe. Um, Spotify is obviously getting huge in this space. There's a lot of people tune in Pandora, Apple and Google being the largest mobile platforms there's got to be a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pike. And I, I won't ask you about that directly, but one thing I will ask you, and, and this ties into uh, what you said about being surprised by is what are, what are you most excited about for Google podcasts or maybe just the future of audio content? I think I'm really excited about how Google can best help uh, the whole podcast ecosystem and how it can help the, the ecosystem grow and reach um, a lot more people. Because I think that um, we're in a position to be able to do that. Um, and that's, that's extremely exciting for me. Um, you know, for years, um, until, you know, maybe the last few years, podcasts were kind of a, a niche thing, right? Most people weren't really listening to podcasts. If you did, you were kind of a hipster, 
Um, it was uh, <laughs> it, it, not everybody was doing it right. Serial um, came out and that was kind of a phenomenon. Um, you know, that died down a little bit. But now podcasts are becoming a little bit more mainstream and people are talking about it, but um, it still hasn't reached the majority uh, of the world, definitely. Um, but even, you know, the majority of, of Americans aren't consuming podcasts regularly. Um, and so, um, you know, compared with other, with other forms of media like text or video, um, but even when you compare it with radio, like radio is still huge. It is an order of magnitude bigger than podcasts. And, and that, you know, in 2019, uh, that seems strange to me. Right. Podcasts, I think, are, um, you know, have much better potential than radio. Uh, radio is limited, you know, geographically. Right. Um, terrestrial radio, you know, is constrained by broadcast towers. Right. And so you have to you have to produce content that appeals to um, large sections of the population to get enough listenership. Um, or as podcasts, you can uh, you can produce podcasts that appeal to large uh, sections of the population. But you can really also produce content, you know, that goes into the very big long tail of uh, subject matters and, you know, things that um, interest all sorts of different kinds of audiences. And it's not limited geographically. Um, and I think that that's huge. I think that the potential of, uh, uh, of different format types and lengths uh, and distribution mechanisms is, is also huge. Um, you know, being all digital, I think that, um, uh, lowering costs of streaming bandwidth is going to have um, uh, an impact as well. Um, you know, for a long time, streaming large amounts of audio, you know, on your phone was somewhat expensive, but that cost seems to be going down. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about how podcasts are going to change audio consumption generally. And, you know, I don't know anybody that works over at Spotify, but I certainly guess that that's what they're betting on. Um, if you if you read uh, some of the, the articles online, you know, speculating on Spotify strategy, uh, that certainly uh, seems to be um, where they're, they're betting a lot of their future is, is on the growth of the podcast ecosystem. I, I don't know the statistics on this related to radio, uh, AM, FM radio in the U.S. versus podcasts, but I just want to give a shout out to our listeners on Tesla's who may be operating their Android powered, I believe, uh, car car screens <laughs> and listening to this MP3. So shout out to you, Tesla hipsters for for choosing podcasts over uh, AM FM. Uh, Curtis, have I have I missed any questions? Am I am I forgetting anything here? Gosh, uh, what's your favorite dessert? <laughs> oh man, my favorite dessert. Dang. Um, I mean, I love chocolate. I love like chocolate bars, maybe more so than ice cream. Um, but I like chocolate <laughs> bars on top of ice cream or in ice cream, like mint chocolate chip. I'd go with mint chocolate chip ice cream. How about you? Oh, man, that sounds good. For me, it would have to be Bananas Foster. Definitely Bananas <laughs> nice. Foster. Yeah, yeah. I have some good childhood memories of of making that um, <laughs> and almost uh, – you know, setting the kitchen on fire because of it. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, what excites you most about podcasting? I think the thing that excites me most about pos podcasting is the barrier to entry is zero. And 
that's true. You could say that of other uh, content formats like text or video, but audio, we're recording this hundreds of miles away from each other. Video, you could do like I we've mentioned before the recording about doing webcams. Um, uh, text, you can collaborate on text documents with maybe an editor. The same is true of audio, but audio and video have a special place for me where I feel like text isn't sufficient. And perhaps more than audio podcasts as a format is interesting to me is interview format audio, where like one or one or two of us, two or three of us, three or four of us are in conversation on the record on uh, on audio. Uh, there's just a, a storytelling vibe about it that can't be beat in my opinion with text. Like I love books, I love me some books, but there's something so cool about audio-based chronological storytelling where unlike text where you can read at your own pace, audio just plays, <laughs> you know, it's objective. It's 45 minutes or whatever. Like, you know what you're getting into with a book. You see whether the first page is good. What takes one person, you know, a minute per page might take another person two minutes. So feels like a more democratic content form than text perhaps. And just a better storytelling format. But, um, I, I, I will say I don't make my living off of it. So, um, Maybe somebody who's got more financial skin in the game would have very different set of opinions, but yeah, that's my take. But yeah. Cool. Dude, All right. Curtis, I do want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.